0: Welcome to The Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. And joining me today is a very special guest named Stephen Willis. And I heard Stephen on <laughs> randomly on YouTube, I came across uh, this spoken word on Button Poetry, and it was called How the Hood Loves You Back. And Stephen just blew me away. It was such an amazing, amazing uh, piece of artwork. And it was just incredible. It was really impactful. And I found myself you know, searching out a lot of his content and searching out his spoken word. And, uh, and so that's who I'm going to be interviewing today. So he, he uses his writing background to embark on the daunting task of creatively articulating African-American culture. With art heavily influenced by urban life and religion, he grew up uh, in Chicago, Illinois. Stephen mixes elements of hip-hop and performance with formal teachings of history and anthropology to help express his, his eclectic personal narrative. He began doing spoken word at the age of 15 as a participant of Louder Than a Bomb and has performed for the likes of radio and TV personality Charlemagne the God and Olympic track gold medalist Sonia Rickards Ross. He is a contributing writer to the Breakbeat, I almost said Breakfast, (laughs) Breakbeat Poets Anthology, NYU's National Council for Teacher of English Journal. Uh, and Manhattanville College's graffiti magazine and is a three-time individual World Poetry Slam finalist, which when you hear him do his thing, you will understand because he does some live spoken word on the show, which is really powerful. Uh, he is currently an MFA acting candidate at the University of Iowa in Iowa City. He's only 26 years old. It just, it, you know, he's got a, a really great story, but I think more more so than that, Uh, is really his message and he really focuses in on our personal narratives our, our life story and the identity and he pulls these pieces in of religion of nationalism of just all of these you know main issues and challenges that we're facing in our world today and and puts them into poet poetry form uh really really incredible i think one of the reasons why i wanted to have him on here is he's also Uh, he's also a black liberation theologist. And so, you know, I wanted to be able to dig into some of these concepts. So this is less of a sort of uh, personal growth oriented podcast episode and more of a open mind understanding, you know, curiosity piece. Uh, For me, you know, I I grew up in, in northern Alberta. I tell Stephen this very admittedly. It's like I grew up in northern Alberta and so the 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 racism that is very systemic here in America, um, especially in certain cultures, it's not that it wasn't there. It's it's simply that it's a different form, and there's a different battle that's happening. And since I've spent a lot more time in New York, it's really been interesting um, trying to understand what the history, like the, the what the history of America and how that's impacted, uh, really like African American culture. And so Stephen does a great job of breaking all of that down. He talks about, uh, you know, the, the black church. He talks about the importance of the matriarch uh, within the culture. He talks about what it was like to grow up in, you know, where, where he was at, at the age of 14, you know, giving anti violence speeches. And so it's a really, really incredible story. Some really incredible uh, pieces. I hope you enjoy this episode. Just a quick reminder Uh, There are only one or two spots left for the men's weekends on the West Coast and the East Coast that are coming up really soon. Um, So if you are wanting to uh, join us, definitely go sign up now. They're going to be the last men's weekends that we have this year. Um, So we won't be doing it anymore for 2019 because I am in the process of writing a book and creating a course. And the book's going to be called Understanding the Shadow of Men. And I've had a lot of people asking me to write a book that unpacks what like how we as men sabotage, what what holds us back from committing in relationships? What holds us back from going all in on our purpose? What what causes us to be lost? Where do we struggle and why? Why do we ghost? You know, how how are dating apps impacting us? And so all of these concepts are going to be in the book, and I'm going to unpack. Um, how we as men can face our shadow and that in the facing of our shadow, we find our truest nature. we find inner peace, we find a sense of calm. Uh, we find direction in our lives in the world. we can find a, a much deeper sense of purpose and we can liberate ourselves sexually, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically. Uh, so that's really the the aim of the book. So because of that, I'm going to be all in on on writing. Uh, And so if you have been interested in one of the men's weekends, uh, please sign up now. We also have the Performance Mastermind starting. So if you're interested in either of those, the Performance Mastermind is a year-long program that I run, go to mantalks.com and check those both out. Sign up if you have any questions or email me. Uh, And without any further delay, I'm going to welcome in Steven. This is such a phenomenal conversation, and I sincerely hope that you share it because it is a powerful one. So Done any further delay. Please welcome Stephen Willis. Thanks for having me, Connor. Yeah, I'm excited. You know, I came across some of your work uh, online and was just really blown away by your spoken word and some of the thoughts that you put into it, yeah. and it really landed with me. And so, I, you know, I wanted to have a conversation with you. So I'm looking forward to this. But before we before we dive into any of that, I have to ask you the question that I ask all my guests, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today.
1: Who? Hmm. I would say when I was very young, I'd say maybe eh, seven or eight years old, I, I grew up in the black church. You know, the most consistent thing I knew was going to happen was that I was going to go to church on Sunday and wasn't going to get to watch the bears play. Cause I'd be in church. <laughs> um, and I was given, you know, what we call a prophecy. And these prophecies continued to happen over my life, but throughout my life in the church. But the prophecy was along the lines of, you know, you, kid, are going to be something great. And I don't know, maybe, maybe church mothers say that to every kid. I don't know. I mean, like, <laughs> parents are always, like, trying to, like, promote that type of thing, you know, esteem in kids. But I believed it. You know, I, I I I totally, totally believed everything that was ever told me, told to me in the prophecy, you know, at those young church revivals that they forced kids to go to. And and I really, really, really bought in. And I believed in a lot of ways that I was gonna be, you know, you, you know, you would read these little Bible stories as a kid, and I, I would, you know, try one on for size. Like, ah, huh, maybe I am David. You know, I'm in a single parent home. I'm kind of like a shepherd boy. Maybe I could be king or maybe that's president. You know, I just, I just, my imagination would run wild um, because of that, because of what people would speak over me so much as a child. And I think that has very greatly inspired kind of the way that I interact with the world, even today Mm. with just this under, line being of just like, I'm living in a story and every story has its ups and downs, but that end goal is going to be what was said to me.
0: Yeah. Can you say more about the idea of, of living in a story? Cause that seems to be fairly like, it almost sounds like your, your upbringing and the way that you think is like really indicative of, of that concept. And so I'm just curious if you can unpack yeah. that a little bit more for the listeners
1: for me, everything is a narrative. Everything has this linear line of beginning, middle, and end. And I would say that everything that I do in my life is centered around that. You know, I'm, I'm a helpless romantic. So the moment that I meet a girl, I'm like, wow, our wedding is going to be awesome. (laughs) Right. I'm already so far, so far at the end. And, and it's, it's, it's a good thing and a bad thing. You know, it's a bad thing because it it becomes difficult for me to stay in the moment because I'm so, so busy thinking about the end of the story. But I, I think that if I keep it in mind that it's, a, that it's a story, it makes me already know that there's an expected end, which is a phrase that you hear often a, a lot in, in the Black church, you know that the Lord has prepared an expected end for you. And it's a part of that escapism idea that exists in Black theology that allows you to go through whatever you're going through, knowing that no matter what happens, there's going to be something that is positive on the other side, whether that is um, a miracle, whether that is a breakthrough, whether that is salvation. And I, I, I need that in order to operate in in this world. And I need I so much of how I operate with life are the stories I tell myself. And I think other people are like that too. It, unknowingly, they are operating in the world based on the stories that they tell themselves that promote fear, that promote thoughts of lack, that promote anger or hatred or that promote love. But I am just actively, you know, even at 26 years old, controlling mm. my story, and and what I want myself to believe, and what it is that I think that I'm doing
0: here. Very cool, man. Very very interesting. I, I love that perspective, and and just the idea that, you know, it sounds like it, it really brings in this concept this idea that we are influenced by the external narratives that are going on around us but we also have this internal mm-hmm. narrative that is unfolding constantly that is is who we are and i'm curious like maybe um so like I, I admittedly i was born in like a very small town in northern alberta canada and so you know my my understanding of American culture is sometimes limited and especially of, you know, you've, you've mentioned growing up yeah. in, in the black church and I'm wondering if you can unpack that a little bit more and, and what, what makes that unique? Like bring me into the life of what it was like for you to grow up in your community. You grew up in Chicago, Illinois, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, right. so bring bring me into that cuz like help help paint the picture and the story and the narrative for me of of what it was like and for the listeners but of what it was like mm-hmm. for you growing up in in that community and that environment what was it like and and what differentiates the black church from just like a regular church cuz it sounds like there's a very unique sense of community and love that is yeah. embedded within within that church.
1: So it's not only, for me, what makes it so interesting is is growing up in the Black church, but also growing up in the Black church in Chicago, right? So we're talking about this place that is an urban center for a lot of people who escaped the South during the Great Migration and settled here in Chicago. So, and then you also have these, you know, just urban literacy, I like to say, like understanding how a big city machine works. And so you have these mixtures of like moments where we could be really, really, really uh, liberal. And then other moments where we could be really, really, really conservative, all really mixed in in one. But to sort of kind of provide a context. So I, I went to church on the south side of Chicago. Um, a church at the, at the time was called New Covenant Life Church. It was on 9321 South Cottage Grove Avenue. And that is about, I'd say, an eight-minute drive away from where Barack Obama went to church on 95th Street at Trinity United, under the guise of Reverend Jeremiah Wright. Now, and if anybody remembers when President Obama ran for president, the biggest scandal of his presidency was the things that Jeremiah Wright was saying from the pulpit. And I remember watching that. I was a I guess a freshman, sophomore in high school when President Obama was being elected and going, wait a minute, that's not common. The, the rest of the world isn't aware of the black radicalism that exists in the pulpit via black liberation theology is what we call it. And it's this basically this notion of reading and interpreting the Bible based with black narratives at the front right so everything we read is connected to our liberation everything we we read is expected to our hope of better progress and a more realized citizenship in the united states and a lot of that happens also it turns into constant critiques of america which you see happen there so i grow up with this with this notion of Religion being highly connected to identity. I think in the same way that a person who lives in Israel can't, ex- can't remove the idea of Judaism from their experience in their country. Or the way a person who lives in Palestine can't erase the idea of Islam as a way that they experience their country. I think it would be very difficult for me as an African-American who grew up in the church... To separate that hmm. from myself, yeah, yeah. If that makes any sense, it, it just controls the entire way that I understand and comprehend the world. I mean, it, it, I was taught it was the underlying of everything. You know, yes, there was the civil rights movement, but it was Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, right? Yes, you have the death of four little girls, but four little girls who were bombed in a church, right? It, it's it's here's this political aspect. But also here's the spiritual aspect that's always there. And so it creates an an idea that religion and politics and experience in America all sort of kind of mix in in one. And I I think that just so greatly influences just everything that I do. And just I, I am always aware of the spiritual aspect of things. And that question of hypocrisy that exists in America, you know, I, I said in a talk some years ago, I said that I think that the conversation that black writers are always having with America is challenging them on their hypocrisy. It's, it's trying to tell America how they have fallen short to the laws of their God, how they have fallen short to the rhetoric of their constitution and how they have fallen short to the truth and integrity of their laws and creeds. And it's a constant, it's a constant challenging of that. Always, 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 always. And I felt that my experience in the Black church helped me articulate that and understand that in ways that I think no other experience could. And then there's also the aspect of, you know, Mm -hmm. escapism, which I mentioned earlier. And it's this idea of from the beginning African-Americans are taught from when slavery or black slaves really begin to become strong Christians of that. The only thing that we're really destined for is salvation that you can't really citizenship. Isn't really probably one freedom really, isn't probably one. Yeah. We hope and pray for it, but salvation. And I think it's caused us to have an over obsession with death. As if death is the only way to escape this this cruel
0: life that we have. You know, I think that that role that you're talking about previously of challenging the rhetoric and the in the sort of ideologies within the institutions that and the and this sort of quote unquote powers that be is such an important role. And I'm curious if you can sort of say a little bit more about that, and and maybe just un, unpack. Uh, maybe we'll get to this but I would love for you to unpack some of the foundation or the, or the pillars or principles of black liberation theology because that that seems really fascinating it seems to actually tie into some of the uh some of like the missions that you're talking about in terms of challenging the rhetoric of of these institutions
1: wow well first off I want to say i, I am not qualified to give you the missions of,
0: <laughs>
1: of, of, of uh, Black liberation theology. Um, unfortunately, probably the most iconic Black liberation theologian, James Cone, died this past April, um, which means that the living, I would say, master of it of sort would be Reverend Jeremiah Wright. So you might have to try to get him on the show yeah. if, <laughs> if you want if you want those particular answers, but I, I can sort of kind of tell you what it's done for me, the pillars of which I understand it. And I think first it is an understanding of, of history, of, of being very fond of your history, not only before coming to America. So our African history, but also our African-American history, not allowing the shame of slavery to exist. I think a lot of people are ashamed of slavery, African-Americans, when in actuality, it's it's to be Black and alive in America, to survive slavery, is a miracle. You know I mean, everything was trying to kill you, everything. So to think that you survived that is, is something to be proud of. I think it's uh, an element of having a global perspective global perspective of so many people, when you think about in the 90s, were participating in apartheid in South Africa, a lot of African American uh, people. And I think, you know, African Americans, I say all the time, are, they're just pan-Africanists at heart. And, and, you know, pan-Africanism, this idea that was brought by Marcus Garvey while he was in America, though he is a, he is actually a, should I say a student of the empire. He was taught in, in Britain, but he was, he's a Jamaican man. You know, this idea of Pan-Africanism where all everyone who was a part of the African diaspora are one. Um, and, and we should unify under this particular notion. I think a lot of that influences the work that you see churches, black churches do in South Africa, do in Cuba, do, you know, in Nigeria, this very large global perspective um, of not just our liberation here in the states, but all people's uh, liberation, and, and and I do think it's a it's an understanding of the Bible, and I think that leads us back to stories and narratives, and how can it, it controls our literacy and the way of, you know, historically, so many African Americans learned how to read and consistently read in mm-hmm. Sunday school. And learned how to read and consistently read Bible stories and why so much of the way we operate with the world comes from those Bible stories. If you if you listen to old uh, hymns or old, even like slave tunes, they're all stories. You know, didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Because if I could read that story of my Lord delivered Daniel, he can do it for me. You know, there, there's so there's so much connection to the exodus and and why that matters to us and people who were persecuted for their beliefs in the Bible and why that matters to us and and it, it it's why I became a writer I I became because of this obsession that I felt like I had with story and that my people had with story
0: Yeah, it sounds like the. That that sort of like concept of salvation is really like intertwined and and deeply deeply rooted mm-hmm. in in the theology and within the church and and within the storytelling and yeah you know, I'm curious how that has impacted because you just said that's you know, why I became a writer and it's why you started writing poetry so maybe just give us some context for what did lead you down that path and and when did you start. When did you start taking some of these things that you were learning at church and, uh, you know, just just within your school and your education? When did you start taking some of these things and and putting them into more poetic forms?
1: I wasn't a poet at first. Um, I was a rapper, like all young black boys from Chicago (laughs) are at some point. I feel, (laughs) you know, I I joke all the time. I said, you know, when I was growing up in Chicago, you could either be Kanye West or you could be uh, Michael Jordan. And God bless me with the scribble, <laughs> not the people. Right, so I, I i went straight to the straight to the writing aspect, and and I was doing rap verses. And and the funny story is, the first poem that I ever did, technically, was I was doing a performance. I was maybe thirteen or fourteen years old. I was doing a performance for my then music teacher in eighth grade this was like the summertime and she's like, Hey, you know, I want you to do a performance at this event and you can do one of your little raps. And I was like, okay, yes. Awesome. It's going to be like my first performance at 14. And I left my music at home, like totally Stephen Willis style. I would lose my head if it wasn't attached to my shoulders. I left my music at home and I had to do it acapella and in doing it acapella, I, I found what was sort of a poetic rhythm. And, you know, fast forward going into high school, I I used to travel around the city of Chicago and do anti violence speeches for then Mayor Daly. My pastor at the time, Joanne Long, was one of was a commissioner on one of his boards. And, you know, she would always get him to like get me to go on stage and like do little anti violence speeches in the city. So I had this very consistent life of being on stage and doing things that I wrote. And in high school, they always make you like present your projects. I don't know why they make us do that, but they do. And here I was, this 14-year-old kid who had no problems getting up there and just speaking very extemporaneously and eloquently. And my history teacher at the time was baffled by this. He's like, who is this kid? And she goes, have you ever done poetry before? And of course I lied. And said, like, of course. <laughs> was born for this um, because that's what pompous 14-year-old boys do. From that moment, she said, I want you to try out for the poetry team, which is in Chicago, it's louder than a bomb, you know, one of the largest teen poetry festival in the world. And I didn't make the team my freshman year, which I found out she did intentionally. She was never going to put a freshman on a team, but it, it lit a fire under me. And from that moment, it, it was just, poetry all the time I, I just found myself writing 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 even though it was very still rap like and and still very rhymy and still very in verse early in my work it it was it, it was all so i could stand on stage and perform and, and and give my energy and body to something so thanks lauren lucas mm. wherever you are you changed my life
0: yeah <laughs> I was going to say, you know, what an in, like what an incredible space to be in, right? You're, you're like 14 years old giving anti-violence speeches and I'm curious of, of a few things. One, what spurred that on? Like what spurred on the fact that you're out there at 14 years old giving anti-anti-violence speeches cuz like, you know, at 14 I was playing hockey and you know, didn't really know much about altruism or altruistic endeavors. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so you and, and there, there, you, you know, I was, I was very focused in on other things, but here you are, you know, really crushing. And so maybe give the listeners some context to, to why you're out there giving anti violence speeches and, and maybe what it was like growing up, like what part of Chicago were you growing up in? And, 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 and you know, I think from an external perspective, based on how the media portrays it, based on how, you know, it's, it's seen from the outside, it can seem like a, you know, a very interesting yeah. place to live. And so maybe, maybe just give us some context of what, what that was like and and why you were given those talks.
1: So I think it leads back to the idea of, of prophecy, right? You know, me being this young boy and being told you're going to be something great in life. Mm-hmm. You need to believe that the Lord has a plan for you and me believing it and and that giving me the courage to stand on stage and talk and speak and my pastor at the time was a very smart woman who knew that you couldn't just tell the kid he was you had to let him show he was too and so the moment that i stand you know at a church function you know you have those like little church functions where Mm -hmm. you know kids go on stage and read a scripture and you know here i am doing that very eloquently and she said okay there's a place for you i don't know where it is but i'll find it and they're having this and you know mayor daly's having this you know anti-violence thing or whatever why get an old pastor to get up there and talk get someone their age to do it Stephen, can you do it well you're not going to say no to your pastor who's 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 asking you to do it while also telling you you are going to do it and so there i am you know writing these things and taking Bible verses and creating metaphors for the current day world and society and writing them in a little notebook and then standing on stage and doing them. You know, it's cool at first when you're doing it at 13 and you know, 14, but then your voice drops (laughs) and um, you want to get girls attention and you realize that being the nerdy dude up there telling Bible verses and telling people to put the guns down, is it going to really get you the ladies? which is why rap and poetry came around at the best time, right? It was a a new way that I felt that I could communicate with people my age in a way that I thought that they would listen. So I don't think, you know, you talked about liking how the hood loves you back. That's an anti-violence speech. That's a narrative about the stories of what I experienced on the South side of Chicago, of the real experiencing life of retaliation Of retaliation killings that exist and what the presence of violence there does to how we grieve. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing that I was doing at 14, but this time it's in a way that I know that I can really hit the people who it's for and who will really, really listen and and who will really, really coin in. You know, I've been spending my entire life trying to find ways to do what I've been doing since I was 14. And, and finding different ways, different ways to make it, to make it happen. So, again, there's that story mm-hmm. again. There's that narrative. Young shepherd boy with a slingshot who then uses it to, to slay Goliath. You know, what, what happens when he had that slingshot with him every single day?
0: Do you have a piece that you... I know we didn't talk about this before the show. I probably should have asked this because <laughs> now now we're like interviewing and I'm not and I'm going to spring it on you. But do you have a piece that you'd be willing to just like do for us and then we can kind of look at it? Because I think one of the things it, like that really stood out to me is as I went through... You know, I consumed. I, I saw uh, how the hood loves you back, and I I listened to that. I, and I listened to it a few times, and I, you know, got my wife to listen to it, and then I went through and just like listened to a whole bunch of your pieces, and they really do have such incredible stories embedded into them. So, are you are you are you open or able to do one for us, and we can kind of talk about it?
1: Sure, I would love to do that.
0: You know, one of the cool things of what we're talking about is, you know, where you've you've unpacked quite a bit about religion being connected to identity and, you know, the, the this concept of black liberation theology and, you know, growing up in the church. And I would love to just sort of like hear your words and how all those things have influenced it. And then we can kind of look at it and, and go through that. So if you if you've got sure. something, I'm, I'm ready.
1: Sure. You know, I'll provide a little context. In the African American experience, particularly in the church, the idea of death is often synonymous with being absent, of of not being present in a place. And of course, being present in a place is synonymous with being alive. You know, so we often wouldn't say that someone has died, we'll say they have transitioned or they are no longer with us or they've gone home to be with the Lord. Right? And that idea and that notion is something to keep in mind um, as I do this, do this next speech or poem, really. One more thing, I, I, one more level of context about the idea of being, a, being alive and it being synonymous with presence. You know, let's say that you have an, an older grandmother who I haven't seen at church in a while. And I say, hey, Connor, you know, how is, you know, your grandma? You'll say, ah, she's still here, which is your way of telling me she's not dead. You know, she's still alive. She's still around. And, you know, I would say I was happy to hear that. So this is um, no black boys die on Mother's Day. And there the church mothers go again. Herding their grandbabies into church pews like a shepherd preparing for a storm. The oldest is bribed by the promise of dinner, of its greens and its pot liquor. The youngest, a purses bottomless pit of peppermint candies. But hey, we all here. Now I don't know. What the CME in Bethel Temple CME Church stands for, but I imagine it stands for Christmas, Mother's Day and Easter. The holy trinity of black religious celebration. The only days that we, the biological descendants of this church's mothers, are forced to be here. And today is Mother's Day. The most sacred of the three. The only day the black matriarch can get even her grown son to dot hot pink in a blazer. Loafers in slacks are a tall order she knows. So she'll settle for him in white sneakers and jeans if he won't wear a belt. Hopefully he'll hold his pants up long enough so they don't fall during the altar call. It doesn't matter what you wear, she says. Just come as you are. All that matters. Is that you here, and we are all here, under the watchful eye of the Lord and a grandmother in the choir stand, we. The proof of our grandmother's blessings, we. The evidence that the prayers of the righteous availeth much, we. The barrage of belligerent Black boys who will stand on your street corners in tote bandanas and berettas on May 2nd Saturday only to tote Bibles in bow ties on May 2nd Sunday, on Mother's Day, we will come as we are. With no street cred but that of our grandmother's last tithe, we will come as we are. With no reputation but that of our grandmother's last testimony, and our grandmothers will pack the congregation with us, as if to say, look what the Lord has done, how he's been faithful, how he's kept them alive. And ain't it just like a black woman, To have a day dedicated to her, but spend it praying for somebody else. And today, nobody gets jammed up out west. No turf wars happen over east. No police go acquitted up north today. The block is quiet today. The morgue is empty today. The jailhouse chatter has fallen to a sweet mutter of mama. Because the truth is, no black boys die on Mother's Day. We are all here under our grandmother's hymns, hats, and hallelujahs. Our blunt, blistered lips touch, cheek-turned kiss before our heads bow to pray. And I know, Mama, I know with all that's going on in the world, it gets harder and harder to get us all together like this. But you managed it this year. and We are all here. We are all.
0: So good, man. So good. I like, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it it like, I think one of the things that I really just listening to this really love about your spoken, spoken word is that it, it, it really tells not only a story, but you know, when I close my eyes, I feel like I'm there. You know, I feel like I I can almost picture what that environment Mm -hmm. is like. And, and, you know, I would love for you to maybe just unpack some of the important pieces and concepts that that are in this piece for you and you know and 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 what you want to land for people you know with this piece
1: yeah I, I you know i did it a lot in the context this idea of here being a phrase synonymous with being alive when a grandmother says you know that just come as you are all that matters is that you're here in a country where we're constantly talking about the death of Black boys. You being here isn't just you being here with me in the church, you know, you know, sucking it up and coming to church with me on Mother's Day and, and me being okay with you wearing jeans and sneakers, but you being alive. And so much of, you know, this ritual that exists in the African American community of going to church with grandma on mother's day you don't want to but you go right <laughs> right going with her is so much a celebration for her it's a boasting of sorts look at my babies look at my new grandbabies look how look how big they've grown look at their daddy and look how the lord has blessed me with another year of all of us alive for me it's just another way that I find a way to intertwine with, you know, somebody asked me, do you do Christian poetry? And I'm like, Oh my God, have you heard the hustle speaks? Like, <laughs> like, have you heard how the hood loves you back? Like, no. Right. Right. There's, I yeah. get shunned if I did those in a church, but I, it, it's about it being understanding that this underlying spiritual presence exists in our lives. And, and whether we're allowing it to be this, you know, th- there's this huge, you know, radical fight against the way the church sort of kind of race manages us and tells us what we can't do or whatever. And, but it's still so intertwined in, in our existence. And th- there, is a, there is a presence there with how we worship and how we interact with religion that our impending doom of death. It's always in the is always in the background. It's always there. And even and even in our celebrations, it's a celebration of life. You know, that death has not has not come yet. And I I just I just hope that people who listen to that and hear that, you know, hear the love that our families have, hear the love that grandmothers have for their children but also hear how we love harder knowing what could eventually consume us.
0: Mm. I mean, it sounds like the, you know, the feminine, the matriarch, like really plays such an important role for that, for that, like here and now, you know, it sounds like there's this, there's this coming together and this respect for the feminine that brings people in and creates that that unity and that, that peace, you know, that peaceful moment. So can you say a little bit more about that? The matriarch is the most important entity in the
1: African-American life. There's this very famous text called the Moynihan Report written by um, a, a former senator who said that the death of the African-American community will be their matriarchal structure. We that America itself is inherently patriarchal, and that the lack of strong male heads inside of the African American community is what is going to lead to their lead to their demise. And I remember reading that report and and, and being so in shock and being so angry and also feeling like I've heard this before and it made me think about, it made me critique the church in a lot of ways, the black church, not necessarily my upbringing. So I grew up in a church where my pastor was a woman and I did not know that that was foreign. I, I didn't know, you know, it wasn't until I got older that I realized like, Oh, people legitimately believe women are not supposed to preach. But again, I saw religion as this major aspect and the most important component to one's culture. So I grew up in a matriarchal structure. Uh, My mom runs my house. I live in a single parent home. My grandmother is the matriarch of this family. It didn't. So, of course, I go to church and my religious leader is to a woman. It didn't it didn't dawn to me uh, that patriarchy. Was even a thing like imagine being five, six, seven years old and not having an understanding of patriarchy in that way Mm. Um, until you hear the visiting pastors or, you know, other churches you visit with your friends that are speaking about how black boys are turning gay because there's no men at home. Or how there's no man head of households and that's leading to the violence and, and, you know, how we have black families filled with welfare queens who are only going to create princes of the prison system. Um, you know what I mean? Just, mm-hmm. you know, very articulate, almost poetic ways that patriarchy would fester in the pulpit. And these other ways that I would, other ways that I would hear it. And I'm saying, no, we, we, this, this is us. This is our, this is also a cultural aspect and it has to have place in the way that we worship and, and, and live and, and operate in, in religion as well. You know, I, I say all the time, I think black women are the moral compass of America. Mm-hmm. You know, a black woman is the one who's going to keep it fair. she's, she's going to keep it fair, man. Like that, that's the one who's going to play it down the line. She's not going to let you do nobody wrong, you Mm. know, to use some AVE, right. She's (laughs) she's just, she's just not. And a lot of my writing now is, is steering towards this love and appreciation
0: of the matriarch. I'm curious. I just want to jump in there. Like, tell me a little bit more about that. Why, why is it that That black women are just like have that center line that you're talking about and that they're not going to let you you know people go astray like what is it about the the culture the the religious aspect the the upbringing what is it that creates that mentality and and how did that impact you because it sounds like it sounds like you grew up around that um type of of leader so can you speak to that it,
1: it is has a lot to do with um, I think the Black woman's intersections, right? And we're and we're familiar for those of you who aren't who are familiar with Kimber you know, um, Kimberly Crenshaw and her notion of intersectionality mm. of basically saying that we have, you know, I'm going to give a Kimberly don't kill me, you know, but I'm going to give a very basic notion of this, and that is basically we as human beings have a bunch of identities that exist at once right and those identities particularly manifest in what type of place we are so let's just talk about the black woman is black she's woman she may be Christian you know in some cases she may be queer right and how all of those particular identities create who she is at one time and how those things may particularly manifest in different places it may be different on the job, it may really, really matter that she's black and woman on the job. Whereas at home in her own family, it may really, really matter that she's woman and queer that may not fly, right? And so when we're talking about the black woman in America, her intersections of being black and the oppression that exists for black people, of being woman, of the oppressions that exist of being woman, and then oftentimes being poor and the essence that exists there and you get And all of a sudden you get all of the major concepts of the American identity put in one, Mm -hmm. the notions of capitalism, uh, the notions of patriarchy and the notions of race. And so it puts her in this very, very interesting place to be able to comment on all of those things in a way that other people in other identities cannot. You know, it's it's one of the reasons why we ha- the feminist movement could not stand for Black women and why a womanist movement needed to exist. Because the feminist movement, when it blew up in the 60s, was really about getting white women out of the home and into the workplace. Well, guess what? Black women have been out of the workplace, have been in the workplace, I'm sorry, for a long time. And the workplace they were in was your home mm. <laughs> as your, as your nanny or as your as your uh, domestic worker, or as your maid, or as just simply the help, right? And so because of this, they have a lot to say about the identity and the moral compass and the spirituality of America. And they have a lot to say to challenge white men, a lot to say to challenge white women, a lot to say to challenge Black men, a lot to say about the systems and how they operate, which is why I say they're going to keep it straight. Because they're able to identify with all levels of oppression that one may readily go to when discussing the American demographic.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like such, not just such an important role for our communities, but such an important role within our society now, especially, more more than ever. Um, how, did, how did growing up within that environment, within that system, how do you think that that developed you and developed some of the... The focus and the attention and the work ethic, but also the the um, creative ability that you have. That's a great
1: question. Um, I think that you know, and and we record this is going to probably date your whenever this comes out, but I don't care. I want to say it. You know, we write. We have this conversation on the day that Toni Morrison mm. dies. On the day that arguably the best American writer who is a black woman, ironically, right? Especially when you think about all the things that I'm saying about how articulate they can be on the American psyche, leaves us. And I feel this almost lonely in a way. I I think the presence of black women in my life has always made me feel a a strong degree of safety, of knowing that they always are, are, are looking out for me. And they're going to say something and they're going to speak up. And because of that, I got to be ready when they challenge me as, as, as a Black man and say, OK, this is what you have not done. <laughs> but, you know, as far as it as far as it influences my writing, I, I think hearing those voice, I hear voices in my head when I write and often the voice is theirs uh, of, of the wisdom that they have given me over the years. My mother has given me so many gems over the years. I mean, on accident. I don't even think she was trying. She was just talking, you know, and and just hearing that, or hearing things that my pastor said, or or reading things that Toni Morrison has said, or or, or reading things that Lucille Clifton has said, or speeches that I read a lot of from Fannie Lou Hamer, or you know Julia Cooper. Just just th- I hear their voices, and 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 hearing their voices. I I can't write in a black woman's voice. I I never try to, but it it serves as a moral compass to make sure that what I'm writing is the truth and honest, you know, like, is that honest? Is is that, is that true? You know, my mother used to say to me all the time, she said, yes, you know, that may be right, but is it righteous? (laughs)
0: Like who
1: says that to a teenage boy? What do you mean? You know, it's right because what man may think is Right. And what God may deem as righteous are two totally different things. Yeah, eye for an eye, and man standards is right. You take my eye, I'm still in your eye. That is right, but is it righteous? No. And and I hear that each time I go.
0: Yeah, I like it. I like the the context of, you know, it almost sounds like this voice of grounded reasoning. And righteous, Mm -hmm. righteous grounded reasoning, which is, you know, something that I think that our cultures are sorely lacking in today's, Mm -hmm. you know, today's environment. And you can sort of hear the importance of it. And you can hear the importance of it in in your poetry as well. And, um, man, I mean, there's so much that I want to go into here, but I'm being conscious of time. And I got so, all day, no, but I know yeah. you're a busy, guy. <laughs> so I do have I do have a <laughs> few more, but but I do before we you know before we wrap up, I do kind of want to get into you know what you have started to do with your with this gift of poetry and this gift of spoken word, and I know that you are starting to um, take this message and and you know teach it back out, and so can you just say a little bit more about yeah. the importance of of teaching kids and and just teaching people in general. Uh, how to use these tools.
1: Yeah. Ultimately what this all leads back to is the idea of story and the idea of narrative and, you know, outside of writing poetry and doing my own work in these narrative forms, I also teach and I teach everywhere from, you know, the toughest places in Brooklyn to rural Vermont and the Northeast kingdom. Right. And what I often try to do is I try to get to my students and I teach and I've taught everyone from retired professionals to fourth graders. But ultimately what I want them to do is I want them to explore their own particular identity and realize how that particular identity affects the way that they see the world. And I think once you do that, once you can analyze yourself on that way, you can lend compassion to the rest of the world. And that's what's super, super important important to me and, and what and what I try to do. Can you articulate and understand your story, your experience? And that's gonna give you leeway. You know, if you're a far right um, conservative and you're talking to a far right liberal, don't tell me your politics. Tell me your story. And maybe then I'll understand. Mm-hmm. And maybe then from that level, I can begin to sort of kind of say, okay, this is what we have in common, and and this is what you're missing, and and this is the compassion that I I can have for you. And I think debates would go so much better. You know, these, you know, political debates are happening. I think debates would go so much better if people knew people's story, because then I can start debating you not on policy, but on the personal. You say, OK, OK, yeah, that, that's your experience. But this is this is my experience. Like reading stories as a kid was how I understood the way other people lived. I lived in segregated South Side Chicago. So if I didn't read, I don't know, the Hardy Boys, <laughs> I would not have, have any idea what white <laughs> boys do. Right. Or, <laughs> you know, I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know. I, I, I wouldn't know. You know, that's why diversity is so important. You know, we're not fighting diversity just because we want to be on TV, too. We're fighting diversity because the more you know about me, the less xenophobia has a place because, you know, and you understand. And I and I aim to do that in my work. Tell as much as the black experience as possible.
0: I mean, I think what you're saying there is so important of being able to understand where people come from. It's one of the reasons why on the show, before we get into any really talking about a person's idea or a person's message or a person's teaching Mm -hmm. we talk about the person's story first and foremost because without that i I find that people's openness starts to shut down right they're like mental cognitive openness closes off and and there's a lack of understanding And what power do you think that that poetry and spoken word and just being able to tell these narratives through that medium, why is it so powerful from your perspective? Because it seems to have a different sort of oomph to it. I I don't really know what the word is, but it seems to have a different sort of like power.
1: We talk so much about the black church that I neglected Mm. my form, (laughs) but I think that spoken word is, in my opinion, the greatest form. And I say that because it is a marriage of everything we love. It is a marriage of performance art and literary art. So it is a marriage of your favorite theatrical actor marrying your favorite prose writer and coming together and coming together as one. And using the form to sort of kind of bring you totally into what I'm saying by the metaphors and literary devices that I'm using and also by the way that I'm using my voice and the way that I'm, the way that I'm using my body. You know, I would be amiss if I didn't say it also was very similar to what I saw as a kid on the pulpit and the way stories were told and the way black preachers often orate. Um, So I think it's probably me mimicking a, a, Mm -hmm. a little bit, a little bit of that. But I I think that extra oomph that you're talking about is the way that it seems to stimulate all of those intellectual bases. Because, yeah, you can feel a spoken word poem on a a certain sense, but also don't miss the alliteration that they just did and don't miss the metaphor that they just did. So we feel in a lot of ways we feel by reading, like you read something, how it really touches you and the way it's articulated. And then you also feel by just the way someone passionately is on stage. And I'm hitting both of those senses when I perform. When you watch The Hood Loves You Back, you're hearing a beautiful articulation of grief at the same time you're seeing me almost ball at the death of one of my friends, who I consider a brother. And it it if that doesn't overwhelm you, you just you just don't have a hope. <laughs> That's what I'm gonna say. <laughs> right, it's so right. Good. You just don't. It it it, it has yeah. to it has to.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think more and more, you know, like I was saying before us and, and what you've been really emphasizing is more and more now, especially more than ever. I think we, we need those voices, right? We need, we need those moments of movement where regardless of, and I, that's why I think that the recent events in El Paso and in Ohio, you know, the shootings, it, it's, like something has to wake people up and to, you know, just to the hatred and, and the racism and the segregation, the separateness and, you know, all those other words that that create dissonance within our culture. But, uh, you know, I think we, we need now more than ever something and, and these things that are so important that, that bring us back to our humanness and that bring us back to our sense of unity And I think that's the beauty of, of what you're teaching and and talking about, but also what you create in the world. And so, um, yeah, man. So thank you so much for,
1: thank you so much, Connor. This was absolutely wonderful.
0: Yeah, this was a blast. I'm gonna have to have you back on the show just, uh, just to jam on a few other things, but I think this was a a great start. And just for the listeners that are out there that want to learn a little bit more about you and and maybe want to go watch some more or or listen to some more of your spoken word, where, where can they find you?
1: You can find all of my work and content at com. That's Stephen with the V, um, And Willis, like the guy from Die Hard. <laughs> so Um, And you can, there's a direct link to all of my work, but there's also a direct link that if you want to book me for shows, performances, appearances, talk, and my personal favorite for workshops that I like to do all over the country. So I'm super, super excited. Thank you, Connor.
0: Awesome. Yeah, no problem. We'll have the links for all of that in the show notes so you can check that out. Um, don't forget to share this episode if you enjoyed it and you see the relevance and the importance of this message. Share it with someone else that you know will enjoy it. Uh, and and don't forget to subscribe. Leave us a rating and review. It goes a long way to getting these types of episodes and these types of messages out to other people. So until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.